back to the Hammerslay Inquisition, the world's most self-indulgent interview show. I am Jason Hammerslay. How are you? I am recording today's episode from my home in Northern Virginia, and 28 years and nine months ago, I was in a hotel stairwell in Northern Virginia with today's podcast guest, Starting a Friendship. To explain that, I'm going to take you all for a ride in the Wayback Machine. Come along with me, will you? So it was the Webster Junior High School National Junior Honor Society trip to Washington, D.C., which was uh, sort of a rite of passage for the school's uh, most elite ninth graders. And I should mention at the top that I almost didn't make it there, uh, incidentally, because uh, there was one teacher who single-handedly vetoed my membership in Honor Society because uh, my understanding is she thought I had a bad attitude about home economics. Uh, when in fact, I think it was I was just really bad at sewing. And I wouldn't say that I was unserious about the class necessarily. But let's be honest, she was just like way too serious, like humorless about home economics. And, you know, it was practically entrapment. But anyway, uh, eventually I got into National Honor Society, Junior Honor Society, and uh, that qualified me to go on the D.C. trip uh, my freshman year of high school. And this was just when I was emerging from my pubescent chrysalis and moving tenderly past that uh, awkward stage and making a lot of the friends that would end up being my friends forever. And naturally, I had a mega crush, the defining romantic crush of my adolescence, on a girl we will call here Girl D, okay? And she was also going on this Washington trip. And this was an opportunity for me in a quasi-independent sort of atmosphere with um, with maximum hormonal load to make some kind of move on girl D. But because I was not at all instinctual or learned about these kinds of things, I treated the situation almost like it was a heist movie. And I feel like I needed someone on the inside. So students on the trip roomed in groups of four, which meant that girl D was rooming with girl A, girl B, and girl C. Girl A doesn't really figure into this story. Uh, I didn't know her at the time. She would turn out to be a very lovely person, uh, but we'll just ignore girl A for now. I was only uh, sort of dimly familiar with girl B. I think we had a class or two before that. And as it happens, uh, as the trip began, I was able to strike up a friendship with girl C. Uh, since I was neither patient nor smooth, I made it abundantly clear to girl C that I was way into her bunkmate. And because girl C is such a good person and naturally helpful, she was all too eager to facilitate as much as she could. And maybe you can see where this is going now, listeners. I don't know who gets the blame here. It's entirely possible that my protestations of love for girl D were too florid or euphemistic 
for girl C to follow along. Or, you know, let's be honest, maybe girl C just wasn't paying close enough attention. But the result was a real saved by the bell meets three's company type situation where girl C told girl B that my heart was a fire and girl B told girl C that the feelings were mutual. And then girl C told me that the feelings were mutual without ever managing to say girl B's name. Now, please note girl D was nowhere to be found in this part of the conversation. So I was under this misapprehension for like most of the trip with me trying to casually schmooze it up with girl D who barely knew I existed. And for all the world appeared to be playing a strong game of hard to get (laughs) while I totally ignored and inadvertently tortured girl B. Yeah. Eventually, on the way home, on the way home from the trip, girl C and I had our Kaiser Soze moment <laughs> when girl B ran crying into a Fuddruckers bathroom. Oh. If it had ended that way, the episode would have been a complete tragedy. But somehow, girl C and I came out the other side as good friends, good enough that she's here on the other end of the line with me today. Girl C, Kristen Schaaf, did I get any of that wrong from your perspective? I, I don't think you got any of that wrong, Jason. You you actually had quite a number of details. What I do think we should say, though, is that <laughs> despite all of that, you still asked me for advice dating advice after that well you were a girl and you are a girl a woman girl you'll be a woman soon and as such you have uh inside information access to knowledge that i do not have so um it would be foolish of me uh not to take advantage of that when it's available right yeah after that you did you did be much more specific about who you were speaking about. I think well, all of our conversations started to be a lot more specific. Better, better safe than sorry. You know, <laughs> high school is a time of, of learning hard lessons. Am I right? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. All right. Are you ready to rumble on the Hamlet position? All right, I'm good. ready to rumble, Jason. Let's do this. Let's proceed to questions and tangents and answers. Questions and answers. So, Kristen, you enjoyed taunting and teasing me in our AP American History class. I can remember many a time when you would casually look behind you and and see me behind you and make some sort of offhanded comment about Dan Quayle or something like that, which leads me to wonder uh, how much attention you were really paying. So. Please, if you would, define the term salutary neglect and explain how it presaged the American Revolution. You know, you had to Google that, didn't you? I oh, remember- no. No, that I'm – how dare you? Uh-huh. And, you know, it wasn't – I'm actually wondering, was it – was that AP American history or was that 
I that feel, was AP yeah. American. That was AP American history of Mr. White. Oh goodness. Okay, salutary neglect. That was. Well, the British weren't gonna follow any of the rules that they had over here. We were just a rigmarole. Have at it. Yeah. What happens okay. in America stays in America. That I would say that that is accurate. It was the the policy, uh, perhaps uh, deliberate, but more likely ad- inadvertent, where uh, the British chose not to enforce uh, certain uh, British laws in colonial America. And, and then when they tried to, uh, when they tried to ratchet that up, uh, the enforcement of those laws, it, uh, fomented rebellion. So, yeah, I think, uh, what happens in America stays in America. I think that, uh, that is an inaccurate, uh, summation. So, uh, well done. Thank you. Back in high school, you played the oboe, which as we all know, represented the duck in Prokofiev's immortal Peter and the Wolf. What would you say is your true orchestral animal? Well, I get to call you out. I played the clarinet. No, you I did? played the clarinet in Webster High School marching band for 10 years. And senior year, I played the bass clarinet. I sat next to the oboe players. Oh, my goodness. Uh, all right. I've just been schooled. I've just been schooled. That's okay, but I do have an orchestral animal. So the clarinet was a cat in Peter and the Wolf, is my correct? Exactly. So what is your orchestral animal in that case? Orchestral animal. I think, well, I I think a cat is just a solid animal for me, just generally speaking, whether it's orchestral or, I mean, I'm covered in cat hair right now. (laughs) So I think that probably lends some credence to that. Um, or owls. I'm a oh. big fan of owls. Owls. I know. Yeah. I can totally see you as an owl. Yeah? Yeah. What animal am I, and what musical instrument do you think should Ooh. represent me? Ooh, okay. What animal is Jason? Do we have to go to mammals, or are, like... You, I mean, you could go unicellular if you need to. Whatever, uh, whatever animal strikes you. Oh, don't tempt me. I'm gonna say you're a, you're like a polar bear. Wow, that's uh, probably a little more macho animal than I would have expected, but I like it. You're always kind, and you're always well, for the most part in high school, you were always kind. I mean, it's high school after all, and you know. I, I was you sat behind me in class for like three years in a row. So, yeah, I think I'm going to go with polar bear. And there was another part to that, too, wasn't there? What instrument would you play? Yes. What instrument would represent me? Like if I was if I was in Peter and the Wolf part two uh, and there was a, a polar bear named Jason, what instrument would play my theme music? I... Mean no offense to any players with what I'm about to say, or you. I'm gonna say a violinist or a viola. Really? Yeah. Because you when I think of you, there's always a level of drama, whether it is real or created. Like you are you're on stage or you always have a wordsmithing something, and you can go from Talking about, you know, 
girl D and girl B to singing Billy Joel on the bus in 30 seconds. So needs to be a string instrument that can switch really quickly. But has right. a drama. And then sometimes it's just out of tune. And when it's out of tune, it's out of tune. And B equals D. Uh, uh, you had me flattered there for a minute. I try. I'm uh, in Minnesota now. It's the Minnesota nice. We have to, you know, we start off with flattery and then just go right in for the kill. Staying in high school for just a moment, you were president of our high school's senior class. Do you remember the centerpiece of your campaign platform? Uh, it was junior year. It was junior year? It was junior year. Senior year was Nikki Schultz because I didn't want to run. And I remember this distinctly because I was going to run for re-election, but that meant I was going to be the one that had to organize all of the reunions and such after <laughs> we graduated. And I didn't want any part of that. But so you would have been so good at that. Oh, yeah. I've been to one reunion, I think. But no, junior year, I had little buttons and they were light bulbs and they said, Shoff won't shut you off. And it was basically, <laughs> it was me and Ed Zigarovich. And none of my friends could handle Ed Zigarovich. So one night I stood, I stayed up on the phone with one of our classmates and literally went through the yearbook going, through pictures to see who would vote for me versus who would vote for him. And we determined that I would get more votes. And so we just said, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I'm going to do it. So that's that's how that happened. You know, I, that that is my recollection as well, that the um, your your campaign was mostly a defensive posture against uh, Ed Zigarowicz. Yeah. What were the, the proudest accomplishments of your tenure? Beating Ed Zigarovich. And your greatest regret? Um, I did nothing. <laughs> I mean, I think I think I organized junior prom out at some place, and I think at Casa Larga. At Casa Larga Vineyards, yes, wonderful tonight. I uh, yeah, I think the biggest regret was, I think that was probably one of those learning moments where, okay, I want to be the person that, that like, tells the person in charge what they need to do, not the person that's actually, you know, taking the hits. Oh, you want to be the puppet master, the chief of yeah. staff. Uh-huh. I'm a much better chief of staff than I am chief in most things. Let me put it that way. <laughs> After high school, you attended Wells College. Uh, of course, named after legendary Gilligan's Island actress Dawn Wells. Did she ever come to campus or give any guest lectures? You know, I need to ask the archives about that one. I mean, we, we are on a lake, so she would be familiar. You know, it would be a somewhat. All her maritime experience would come. Yeah. In. yeah. It, it, might, it might bring back good or PTSD. I don't know which one, but um no, I do not know the answer to that question, Jason. So Wells is a, a women's college. Is that uh, is that women with an E or a Y? Um, it would be. It used to be in 2006. They went co-ed. So <gasps> what? Really? Yeah. Oh, it was devastating. Don't even get me started on that because I will go on a tirade. 
Wells is a small liberal arts school, and I it was a women's college when I went there. And I think one of the coolest things to answer your question, one of the coolest reasons I went there, I, I stayed there. Let me put it that way. One of the reasons I stayed there was that it was women with an E, women with a Y, women with an I, like you go ahead and it, you feel free to spell it however you want to spell it, as long as you have a reason that you can back up with critical thought. And so that was Wells. I like that answer very much. Thank you. It It is said that when um, women spend a lot of time together, they're, um, you know, their uh, their situations, their female um Come on, Jason, you've got a daughter. Say the words. Private, personal things, you know, that they get all lined up. Is is there any truth to that? You mean our menstrual cycles start to be at the same period of time? No pun intended. Uh, yes, that is that is what I uh, was laboring to say. Okay. Any truth to that notion? Yes, absolutely there's truth to that. I'm actually a firm believer that you don't actually have to be in physical proximity. But, oh, yes. I mean, you, you know, when when the French silk pie comes out for special dessert night, you know, you know, like you just know. Oh, uh, yeah, that that uh, probably does uh, help for scheduling purposes, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it is actually really convenient if you think about it that way. I mean, oh, there's a run on Ben and Jerry's. I just played <laughs> into every stereotype that I should not be playing into as a graduate of a women's college. But, yeah, it's facts are facts. Uh, yeah, speaking of facts, it says here that you worked for a member of Scottish Parliament. Is that true? Three of them, yes. Uh, now, was that before or after uh, Scottish Parliament merged with Scottish Funkadelic? Oh, Jason. Oh, Jason, Jason. And what did they ultimately decide about giving up the funk and tearing the roof off the sucker? <laughs> Well, um, I worked for three members of the Scottish Parliament who believed that Scotland should be an independent country outside of the United Kingdom. So I'm going to say probably rip the rip the roof off, um, but keep the scotch and the oil and the tartan. So how's that for my answer? Well, I, I, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, you, you said that you worked for three uh, members of Parliament. Yes. Yeah. Uh, did, did you ever get a, a good look at the members? The members' members or the members? Uh, did you ever get, a, uh, you know, a look at the members? Were, were they were they big members? Would you say the members were a big deal? Jason, I don't know which way you want to go with that conversation, but I'm going to say... Let me put it this way. Of all the members you've come in contact with, who was the most impressive? Um, Thank you for rephrasing that. Um, Just... There's actually a lot going on over there. Um, I think I'm slightly flustered when you say that because this person has come up a lot in the last three weeks. So I probably owe him a phone call. Mike Russell was is a member. of. He's still there. He's still in Parliament. He's a minister now, I think. But he he was pretty, pretty awesome. Um, and he helped me a great deal in my life. And he was one of those is one of those people that would go into the chamber with me giving him all of the facts and figures literally as we were running (laughs) 
across the street with me giving him, you know, whatever the budget numbers were, the police statistics or something. And he wouldn't be writing anything down and he would go into the chamber and he would have figured out four sound bites. He would have been the lead story. He would have like he was brilliant with taking information and very quickly turning it into something that was understandable, relatable and scalable um, from a messaging standpoint. And man, I was always in awe when he would do that. And he'd come back and he would give me the, I still have them. I still have notes from him. Like he had one, one time he came back and he was talking about Batman and Robin and something. And he gave me the notes and he just had these drawings of Batman and Robin all over this blank piece of white paper. And that was his notes for his speech. <laughs> so um, that was, man, he's an awesome dude. He he knew it. Published author. I have his books. He's just he was he's a renaissance man. I didn't even know they had Batman and Robin in, in Scotland. How would you say that with a Scottish accent? Um, Batman and Robin. I don't Batman and Robin. I don't know. That's pretty poor. That's pretty poor. I think you have to roll roll the R a little bit, right? Batman and Robin. Robin. Nah, I don't know if it's a it depends. It depends on the use of the R, whether you roll it. I'm I because it's like Dreek when you say Dreek. See, I'm one of those people that I would get the word right. So I would say I spent a year in Scotland as I was going to university. Well, the two words that I got in that sentence were Scotland and university. And everybody told me to just stop doing it because it sounded super weird because I sounded like an American and all of a sudden a voiceover came in for those two words. So, yeah, like you're being dubbed. Yeah. It's a really hard it's a really hard accent to get. But if I'm on the phone with somebody for more than half an hour, I, I will tend to pick it up very quickly. I was in New York City with all of them when we were down there for the Tartan Day Parade and I came back and my parents couldn't understand me. They were like, <laughs> You need to you need to just stop. And I'm like, Okay. I don't know what you mean. Because they it's very lyrical. As you mentioned, you now reside in Minnesota, which has its own sort of unique accent. And you've been there for... 10 years this month. Oh, 10 years. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you've been there for 10 years. Have you picked up that accent inadvertently? You betcha. Don't you know? Yes. I, I pick it up and sometimes I do it as a joke. And or I used to do it as a joke. And now it has become much more ingrained in my in my dialect, I guess you could say, because I have all sorts of different accents that I follow. I was home in Webster. Oh, it must have been five or six years ago. And mom, dad and I went to Applebee's up on Empire Boulevard. <laughs> you got to go to Applebee's you when you gotta you're in Webster. You got to go. I mean, come on. It's a that was the first cool restaurant in town. And uh, we went and somebody came up. And was asking how it was, you know, how I was doing. And I said, oh, I just moved to Minnesota. <laughs> and my mother, you know, from Connecticut, gloves and pearls. And she's like, excuse me. She proceeded to give me like a phonetics lesson for the next five minutes on the proper way of saying Minnesota. It was fabulous. Oh, that's what that's what mothers are for. Um, it is. Do you think that living in Minnesota has made you any nicer? I mean, you were already pretty nice to begin with. I don't want to uh, suggest that you weren't, but 
uh, do, do you think it has changed your personality? Um, I think it's calmed me down. How's that for an answer? Well, things tend to uh, slow down on a cellular level when they get colder, so that makes sense. Ouch. Ouch. Well, it's definitely colder. I I don't know whether it's getting older or the location, but it, there is something very true that things go a little slower in in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. In New York, it is the it it is the rat race. It is fast. It is move. It's go 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 go. And out here, it is okay. Go go. Okay, now we're gonna wait. So can I just say really quickly? I just one of the things that just came through on my phone, Jason. Don Wells passed away today. <gasps> it says CNN Gilligan's Island. Actress Dawn Wells, who played the lovable castaway Marianne, is dead at 82 from COVID-19 complications. Oh, that's so sad. I wrote that question several weeks ago. Well, I think we should we so should hold off on me. saying any more names today. Uh, that that could be a problem. Okay, yeah, that could it's already be. a problem for Ed Zigarovich. We'll just we'll just knock on wood or something. Uh, last question about Minnesota. How do you feel about Central Time? Oh. Would you care to elaborate on that? So I am conflicted on this one. The first thing is it's pretty awesome as I get older to be able to watch Saturday Night Live at a much more <laughs> reasonable time. Okay. Uh-huh. 1030 is much like the odds of me actually staying awake for the monologue are pretty high versus 1130. The other bit that I don't like is you always have to say this is central time. You can't just go, okay, three o'clock. No, yeah. it's three o'clock, which is three o'clock for you and two o'clock for me. Confirm. Yeah, and I can see that getting pretty annoying. It is. And I work with people all over the world. So it's, I have Google time zones up on a regular basis. Microsoft so you- hasn't figured out how to put enough in to my outlook so do you just make all your appointments in greenwich mean time you know that would be something like everybody just goes from that and just put plus eight or negative six on everything well i'm not very good at math but well we all have smartphones so we don't even need to be good at math anymore speaking of math we have reached the multiple choice portion of today's interview i know you as a devotee of the james bond film franchise am i correct I think you could say that, yeah, but I'm really nervous to say that. Okay, go ahead. If you were a femme fatale in a Bond movie, which of the following names would you prefer? Splenda Temptress, Meliora Booksmart, Harissa Vinaigrette, or Blanche Silverberg? Ooh, okay, so Blanche Silverberg, I immediately think of, you know, Blanche the lovely Blanche. The lovely Blanche from Golden Girls? Yeah. She was the femme fatale of that sitcom. Okay. We're going to eliminate the last two. And despite working for the company that creates Truvia, I'm going to go with Splenda, whatever, whatever, because Splenda is pretty awesome. It's like sugar. It is. It's like sugar, but, you know, sort of mysterious and um, perhaps toxic. Yeah. You are also, on the subject of entertainment, a longtime fan 
of actor extraordinaire Daniel Day-Lewis. Academy Award-winning actor Daniel Day-Lewis. Yes, let's not shortchange Mr. Lewis uh, or Mr. Day-Lewis. Daniel. Dan. We'll call him Dan. We're going to play a game of uh, Hug, Marry, Kill with the following Daniel Day-Lewis roles. Okay. Hawkeye from Last of the Mohicans, Abraham Lincoln from Lincoln, and Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood. So which are you going to hug? Which are you going to marry? And which are you going to kill? Okay. I am going to marry Hawkeye. Like, that's just a given. He started it all for me. Then... And you just want to lock that down. Yeah. Every day. 24-7, 365. You want your Hawkeye. You know, it still is. You know? I will find you. No matter what occurs. Oh, love him. Um... Okay, so Mary Hawkeye, I I can't kill Lincoln. I mean, goodness gracious. It's a bad look. Yeah. And so the other two are easy. You're going to give Abraham Lincoln a real big hug. Real big hug. Say, hang in there, man. You're, you're, you're kicking ass and taking names. And so long, Daniel Plainview. Yeah, peace out. What kind of shoe is your favorite? Like what kind or what brand? Yeah, what kind of shoe? Do you like a sandal, a sensible flat, a boot? I'm about I'm close to six feet tall, so I go for ballet shoes or kitten heels. Uh, okay, all right. And I, I, I just want to uh, underscore for the listening audience that this is totally unrelated to any fetish that I absolutely 100% do not have. This question is just a way of measuring how much a person values style versus comfort. It's, mm-hmm. It sounds like it, it, part of it is comfort, but also part of it is just plain aesthetics that you don't want to tower over your lessers. No, they're just not comfortable. I wore I wore two and three inch heels for like 20 years. And I'm like, Pete, no, no more. I was like six, two with, with heels on. No, 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 no. And, and you didn't mind the altitude. You just thought it was uncomfortable. Yeah. OK, I respect that. And I in winter, you have to wear boots. Like, in winter, you have to wear boots and then put your heels on. But everybody sees you on the walk to and from work. So it defeats <laughs> the whole point of wearing cute little shoes because you sit at a desk all day and nobody sees them. So my rational mind just went, okay, fine. I'll get a cool pair of boots and just wear ballet shoes. So uh, that, that makes 100% sense to me. Uh, last question. Pop quiz. What was the name of the shoe brand that looks like a pump, feels like a sneaker? Looks like a pump, feels like a sneaker. Oh, I can see the women like playing basketball in them. <laughs> That's right. Was it like, oh, they were so ugly too. Um, I want to say like Life Stride or something. Easy Spirits. Yes, Easy Spirit. There you go. There you go. They're still around. Well, they were before this year. That is an iconic commercial with the women playing uh, yeah. basketball in those heels. Oh my goodness, that would be that would be a a cool charity fundraiser. We'll have LeBron play. In- <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we move on to questions from the listening audience. 
Now, this is everyone's favorite part of the podcast where I give the listeners a chance to ask questions. But since my listeners aren't asking any questions, I am using questions that have been submitted to other people's podcasts. Are you ready to find out what kind of creeps there are out there, Kristen? I I am ready to be confirmed that there are a lot of creeps out there, Jason. <laughs> All right, let's get started. The first question comes to us from the podcast Marching Band, you know, the title of which, if you ask me, is a bit on the nose. You, as you mentioned earlier, Kristen, were a proud member of the nationally renowned Webster High School Marching Band, the Pride of Webster, as it calls itself. And I want to bring some of that expertise to bear here. You know, I looked all over the place for a competent podcast about marching band, and most of what I found were, you know, a bunch of aborted projects that sounded like mumbled extortion threats. And anyway, the the podcast Marching Band, hosted by two extreme introverts named Carter and Jake, issued one six-minute episode in February in which they did answer some questions like this one. How exactly does marching band start? How and when would you go and sign up? And what kind of commitment would one be making? What was your experience with marching band, Kristen? How does one sign up? You just kind of show up to the tryout, and the commitment is pretty much a blood oath for 24-7 of your life for ever until you graduate or you like find an escape route and jump out the window now you you mentioned audition how selective were the auditions at webster (laughs) um were there people who auditioned that did not get in you had to really try to not not get in i will say that one year i was not sure if i wanted to join or not i didn't know if i wanted to come back So I didn't bother memorizing any of the music. And I walked in with a shoebox full of gummy bears (laughs) for the person that was going to be determining if I was going to make it or not. And I walked in and I said, yeah, I didn't know if I wanted to do this or not until like I was on the way here. So I just stopped and got a shoebox full of your favorite candy. Can I just do this again this year (laughs) and you know we had a 15 minute conversation as you do with the high school student to figure out what's going on and they kept me so that tells you something there well it says something about your prior established reputation all the marching band people listening to this have just like oh my god who was that that just did that like oh my goodness it's been 28 years guys get over it yes Our next question comes in to the School of Greatness podcast with Lewis Howes, who calls himself a best-selling author, and I'm just going to put this phrase in the most dismissive air quotes possible, a lifestyle entrepreneur. And he wants to help you and other listeners find out what makes great people great. Well, Kristen, uh, you like school, and you're already great. So this Lewis guy has nothing on you to start with. Uh, And so uh, Franco from San Juan, Puerto Rico, calls in and he says he's going through a separation right now and he misses his kids and he's got a career and trying to follow his passion. And he asks, how do I choose where to focus more of my energy 
because it's not possible to focus on everything at the same time. What sort of advice would you give Franco? Well, the first and foremost is you have to understand and no, understand is the wrong word. You need to realize your values. What do you value in life? What holds the most intrinsic currency that you are willing to sacrifice for? Is it your family? Is it your passion? Is your family an actual passion? Is it just something that do you value freedom over and your ability to choose? Like you need to know what what fills up the cup as well as what takes it away. And in my experience, once you know that, it doesn't make every decision easy, but it makes them easier. So this guy's got to take an inventory and find yes, out what he, he has and what he needs. But inside, like he needs to figure out not e- not even what he has and what he needs. He needs to figure out what he values. We have to be honest here and, and give out some some tough love. I mean, this guy, Franco, is asking this question of uh, a borderline sociopathic uh, podcaster here, so we can't hold anything back. But, you know, he used a word that's kind of a trigger for me. I'm a real skeptic about the phrase, my passion. I just feel like it's sort of cliche and self-aggrandizing and, and sort of sad. If your passion isn't your friends and family, I, I don't want to go so far as to say there's something wrong with you, but I think that there is something wrong with that. And I know that's me imposing my values on another person. But, you know, hey, he's looking for opinions, and, and that's mine. Now, all that said, there are some things about modern life that probably don't exist without people who are wired differently. You know, if if Steve Jobs was a better father, maybe we don't have the iPad. If Michael Jordan was a friendlier guy. Maybe we'd all be watching soccer right now. And in the future, if we ever get flying cars, it'll probably be because some psychotically brilliant engineer missed her husband's birthday. And those people are usually really smart. And if that's you, listener, and your passion makes the world better instead of like like opening a crepe restaurant or something, then go ahead and skip your kid's basketball game. But otherwise, I think the question is really pretty simple. That's just my take. See, but Jason, I'm, I'm going to challenge you there. I think that because I think words matter because passion is it's defined as to suffer. What are you willing to suffer for? So you can have a passion and have it not be of value. In your case, so if there is somebody, let's go with like Nikola Tesla, right, or Steve Jobs, their passion is to do what? Is it to make the world better? Is it to succeed? Is it to, you know, tinker with things and invent things? Like what what is their passion is what drives them inside. But what they value could be something completely different. Like every every january i do five values like okay what are what is my year going to focus on and i do not have family in my in my top 5 but i have relationships and integrity and quality and for me 
family just automatically falls into those. So when I hear those three words, I automatically go to it. But it isn't my number one. Well, and family can mean whatever you want it to mean. It doesn't have to be just blood relatives. Absolutely. I guess the point I'm making is that if you choose to be a spouse and if you choose to be a parent, that job is just so important and so thankless that it needs to be your passion or you're just going to be bad at it. Franco's got some issues, though. Like, let's be clear. Franco's got some issues, not to be to go totally down an existential. Like, Yeah, we don't we don't know the details, but screwing up a kid is a way bigger deal than failing as a professional wrestler or whatever Franco's deal is. And that's why you're an awesome dad, Jason. Well, thank you. We'll we'll ask my daughter in 20 years how much she agrees with that. So finally, we're we're comfortable with each other. Right, Kristen? We're, you know, we're, we're, we're simpatico. We have a good relationship, right? Absolutely, Jason. Well, since you're in touch with some, some powerful and mystical feminine energy, oh boy. Uh, I, I'd like to ask you a question that was posed to the podcast talk, the pleasure positive podcast. Um, I'm probably going to have to bleep that. What do you think? Do you think I'm gonna have to bleep that? I think you might want to bleep that. Depends on where you go with this, though. I think I'm that, intrigued. Uh, I'm probably going to have to bleep that, but you folks can probably figure it out. Anyway, uh, I found the most tame question I could, and it's about hookup culture. Savannah asks, sounds like a stripper already. Uh, right now, with all the new dating apps, hookup culture has moved to Tinder and Grinder and all of those. So what are your thoughts on all the different kinds of dating apps? What are my thoughts on all the different dating apps? Well, you know, when you said that, I immediately said, you know, it's kind of like the dating apps are the new bars and they're not really that new. But like you knew which bar you were going to go to to meet. Okay, that's where the lawyers hang out. That's where these guys hang out. That's where those people hang out. So you kind of knew what you were getting when you walked into the door. Uh Uh-huh. Dating apps, they're kind of becoming that. Really? it's They're that uh, niche-oriented now? I think generally speaking, yeah. I mean, you don't go to Grindr looking for, you know. <laughs> Someone to go to church with. You know, a, a relationship that, you know, you're saving yourself for marriage for. So I'm told. <laughs> Mom, mm-hmm. dad, that's so I'm told. Uh, yeah, I discussed this briefly in a prior episode of the podcast where I talked about how generally disappointing i found internet dating to be and on on the one hand technology improves and so maybe it's better than it used to be certainly some of the stigma is gone uh you know now that they're in in app form but on the other hand it seems so uh transactional now and commercial not not like commercial in the sense of like sponsored by state farm or whatever but in the sense of the amazonification of dating, making it more like shopping. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think I would be scared to to play in that sandbox, not least because, you know, I'm embarrassed about what I'm selling. I think that you're completely right, because that's what it is. You're going to go online. I have some experience with online dating. And you're going to go and you're going to start messaging with somebody and you think that, oh, you know, this, I wouldn't mind meeting this person in in real life. The odds of me, you know, being cut up into pieces and never to be seen again, 
seem really low with this one. So this one might move over there. And then that's a very they, low bar, Kristen. Dude, trust me, it's actually a high bar. So it is. Yeah. And so you go through this sometimes and you like, thank you for that photo of yourself that I did not need to see. Oh, thank you. And you just, okay, well, fine. You go to eHarmony, I'm willing to bet you're not going to find those kind of pictures. You have to view it as entertainment. You cannot view it as, well, at least in my experience, anybody that goes to online dating and thinks that, hey, I'm going to go to the supermarket to find Mr. Darcy, you know, that <laughs> that's not going to happen there. Since you introduced it into evidence, I want to ask about this, and uh, we don't have to keep this in, but... Uh, you know, let's talk about pics, okay? Yeah. I, I, the the logic just sort of totally confounds me. Do you think that there are some people who would get a, a photo like that and say, okay, sure, this is interesting? Or is it universally a bad idea? You know, I'm sure there is a demographic that it appeals to because Playgirl is out there, right? And but is it? just just looking at just looking at the statistics of i don't want to say that because that implies that i've actually researched this <laughs> <laughs> obviously you're just using your deductive reasoning here i mean i think that the pick thing or whatever it is trend that we'll say is more about the guy proving that they are confident in themselves and hey i'm proud of this and women like confidence right yeah we do but that kind of like there's a little there's a line (laughs) (laughs) all right yeah i mean i like i said the idea uh baffles me but um it baffles me too it, it must have worked somewhere for somebody uh, because I can't think of any other reason why anyone would, would do that. But it, just because it worked once doesn't mean you have to keep doing it. I yeah, mean, but the, the type of people who would do that are the type of people who buy a lot of scratch-off lottery tickets and think it's a good investment. And drive monster trucks, yeah. Possibly. Possibly. All right, well, th- thank you for your uh, your expertise and your candor. Uh, it is now time for the most boring part of the show, uh, a part that I call But Seriously. Seriously. And today we're going to try and make the Hammersley Inquisition uh, actually useful to all the listeners out there. Continuing on the theme of uh, lottery tickets, uh, you currently work and have worked for the past decade as a training specialist with expertise in financial market trading. Have I summarized that accurately enough? Uh, yeah. Before you got into that line of work, you were a personal financial advisor with one of the bigger advisory firms, maybe the, the biggest advisory firm out there. Is that also true? I was a financial advisor with one of the largest financial advisory firms in the country for for roughly eight years. So let me bring to bear that extraordinary intelligence and expertise. What would you say – uh, for someone who's listening to this and may not have their house in order, what are the what are your three or four or five general rules for someone managing their money? Yeah. Okay. So 
When I was providing financial advice, I was licensed and I am no longer licensed. Feel the need to say that on this. In my experience over those eight years, 95% of the people that sat in front of me did not have enough life insurance. And that matters. Unfortunately, we are getting to an age where we do know people that pass away before they're supposed to, or we feel they are supposed to. Like Don Wells. And the impact of that on people that you care about or, you know, those that depend on you, that matters. And what you leave can either be a legacy or it can be devastating. So if you know it is going to be devastating from an emotional standpoint, from a mental standpoint, et cetera, get your house in order with life insurance and do not rely on your employer for that life insurance. Is it money that people don't want to spend? Yeah, absolutely. Who wants to go and buy something that they only get to use when they literally die? Nobody wants it, but you need it. And to your earlier point about family and just general general responsibility, um, you need your life insurance. So that's number one. Not okay, really. That's a good one. That's a that's right there. Number two. If you are not maxing out your 401k, the trip to Disney World is not a good idea. And I say that because I am a huge fan of, and this might, this actually goes back to the values questions, right? If providing your family with, with experiences is something that you value, then okay, make your financial decisions that way you know, and, and to reflect that. So maybe it is going on a vacation every every year. Maybe it is having a nice house. Maybe it is going to private school. Maybe it is, you know, being in hockey and dance and basketball and football and all of that stuff. Maybe that is. Knowing you, you have to realize that that expense is money that you are not putting towards something else. And so every time you buy something or spend something, you are making a choice that eliminates others that you can't go back on. I believe the economists call that opportunity cost. Um, it, yes, it is. Like blatantly, yes, it is opportunity cost. It also, I'm not even getting into compounding interest. It's you see when somebody comes in and they show me their budget, and where their money is, whether it's their investments or their 401k or the minuscule insurance they have or their house or their car or all this, I am able to immediately see what they value in life, mm. whether they know it or not. And that is the most difficult conversation to have with someone is, okay, you're telling me that you want your kids to be able to go to college and you want to be able to pay for 50% or 100% or whatever the percentage is. Okay, that's what you're telling me. You are putting away $100 a month to college and spending $300 a month going out to really nice dinners. Well, what I'm seeing there is that you're valuing something in those dinners more than the future return of sending your kids to college. And it's understanding what those choices are and what the implications are, the consequences. Money is emotional. It is just emotionally charged, particularly now. And you need to know what you stand for and what you value and be as unemotional as possible 
with it. I'm pretty sure Joe Biden once said, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget. Yeah. So the third one. Oh, the third one. Spend less than you make. <laughs> that seems obvious. It seems but obvious. I, but I, I'm sure a lot of people uh, need that lesson. Just don't overspend. Really, people. Do you think, and since you're no longer a financial advisor, you can answer this candidly. Do you think most people need a financial advisor? Or yes. And Jason, that was in my top three list until I bumped it out for the life insurance one. Because I know enough to be dangerous about finance because I was in it for 10 years in the trenches. Then I taught people how to do things for five or six years. And now I'm teaching, you know, I'm responsible for training people that actually do a different kind of finance. So I know what the maximums are on the 401k. I know a little bit about what to put into my investments. I have somebody I meet with actually right after you and I talk to go over what my situation is and if things need to be moved around and if I am still on track to meet the goals that I have set aside. I don't have time to stare at the markets every day. I don't have time to figure out if these ETFs are gonna move faster than those over there. You need somebody that has the time and the talent to be able to see stuff. You need somebody who's passionate about looking at this stuff and can actually translate that into what you are trying to do. I agree with all that, and I'm sure my financial advisor would agree with it also. If I follow all your rules and whatever rules you haven't had a chance to mention in your your top three, top four, and I get rich, am I going to be happier in your experience? That's a really good question. What immediately happened when you asked me that question, Jason, is I saw faces of some of my clients and me trying to determine if they are happy or not, because that is not a question I asked them which is looking back on it pretty horrible, looking back that, you know, it wasn't something that I was necessarily aware of 10 years ago to ask. Well, I don't think you should beat yourself up about it. It's not horrible. It's not your job to assess them emotionally, psychologically. I think how you acquired the wealth impacts your happiness with that wealth. Hmm. I had clients that earned that money by being in a startup that got some VC and then all of a sudden, boom, there we have it. And they're millionaires. Awesome. Are they happy? Yeah. I think they're more proud than happy. And, you know, now everybody comes out of the woodwork asking them for money. (laughs) Then I have, you know, some of my wealthiest clients that, you know, received their wealth because their children passed away. I don't think they were happy. So I think that those are the two that I immediately thought of when you asked me that question. That concludes the segment, but seriously, in this next segment, I will ask my guests to ask me a question, and it is called Turn the Tables. Turn the Tables. 
And uh, before I turn it over to Kristen to ask her question, let me just draw back the curtains here. For all of my past interviews for this podcast, I've said to my guests in advance, you know, if you're going to ask me a question for this segment that involves introspection or deep thought, please let me know a few days in advance. And each and every one of them has done that. You know, as anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, I've a- answered some pretty heavy questions. Kristen is the first person to say, oh, no, you don't have to worry about this question. I'm, I'm not going to give it to you in advance. And I just want to say how refreshing it is to not have to think so deeply about how I'm going to answer a very serious question. And I can now I can just focus on, you know, like, what's my favorite Tom Hanks movie or whatever. So I'm just looking forward to uh, what what you've got, Kristen. So hit me with your best shot. Okay. Ha ha. So my question Kind of goes back to you spoke about our time with Mr. Mr. White in AP American History. And I mm-hmm. feel like we were in you sat behind me in a couple of different social studies classes, a couple of different years, I want to say. And one of the things that you used to have all the time with you was this notebook it was usually red. You had a different one for every year. And it was the Jason Hammersley Files. Yep. And in that, you would have musings. And I still catch myself, actually. I will say, whenever I write in all caps, I think of you because you would always write in all caps. And it would be everything from the top 10 greatest things about the Fiestata to, you know, different people in our in our group and <laughs> their their traits or quirks. And I always envisioned that. I would see you at a Barnes and Noble, assuming they were still around because the Internet wasn't there at everybody at a book signing or something for the something that you had written or a screenplay that you had written with this dry and sarcastic wit. So I have two questions. Do you still have the Jason Hammersley files? Yes, I, I still have it reading it now is a little cringeworthy because 16, 17, 18 year olds don't have a lot of uh, perspective. But yes, I I still do have it and and treasure it. Do you still, well, I think you just kind of answered this. You don't add to it now. No, I don't. First of all, I, I think of that notebook as something that's sort of encased in amber that's a a, a picture (laughs) of what i was like at that time and i think what it is needs to be preserved as it was and you know i have other ways now of exploring these uh thoughts and ideas and, and record them for posterity i have twitter i have google docs full of half baked ideas, essay fragments, and aborted projects. And I, and I should say that this uh, podcast project is one of the first opportunities that I've had to sort of bring some of these ideas into a place where other people can see them. So um, if you're listening to this podcast, you're getting about as good an image of an updated Jason Hammersley files as you're going to get. Well, if you were to ever publish them, whether they are half half done or not finished, I would buy a copy. So I, I'm i glad that you still have something like that. 
I'm I'm smiling while I'm talking about this because I just think about I, I would I would just take that and just start reading through it. And I mean, I think I took it a couple of nights. I have I have the notebook that I would copy some of your stuff down into <laughs> sitting next to me, actually. And I do use it for work sometimes as well. I think that that's pretty fantastic. And I think that if you ever were wondering if something like that would be of value to the outside world, the answer is yes. And I really hope that you will publish something. It means a lot to me that you you would say that and um, gives me a little more uh, confidence to keep trying. Good. The next segment is called Word Association. I'm going to give you 10 words, one at a time. And all you have to do is say the first word or short phrase that comes into your head. Can you clear your mind, please? I am ready. Right. Left. Power. Hungry. Like you're powerfully hungry? Like power hungry. That person's power hungry. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, I think if I had a superpower, it might be that I'm always hungry. Fish. Yuck. <laughs> isn't uh, isn't Minnesota a, a sort of fish forward? Lutefisk and all that stuff. Very yeah. Scandinavian. Now I'm allergic. Ugh. Allergic to fish? Pe- people can be allergic to fish. I am. Well, I, it's that's a whole other long story about me and fish. Fish oh. and I. Fish and me. <laughs> Bad things happen oh. with fish. Okay, that's valuable to know. Snow. Shovel. Charge. Credit card. Sting. The police. (laughs) Trombone. Bobby Kastner. I I had a feeling it was going to be a name. I just didn't know which one it was going to be. I would have guessed T.C. Pellet, but. Uh, Jeff Spoonhauer was up there, too. You got me thinking high school now. Calendar. Love. Index funds. My gut reaction was, ugh, and uh, eye roll. Um, mm, let's see. Uh, judges, can we accept that? We can? Yes? Okay. It looks like we can accept that as a valid answer. Thank you. Last one. Dessert. Oh, yeah. It's all about chocolate. Chocolate. Uh, you and my daughter would get along famously. Yeah. She needs to know about me and that I I have the pictures and the stuff that she's going to need when she <laughs> that pony later in life. I just want to make clear there is no way you're talking about a dick pic. We didn't have the technology. I'm just going to stay silent on that. All right. For our grand finale, it is time for the segment that is half eulogy and half apology. I call it. Yule apologies. Listen, if you please. Yule apologies. So I started the episode out with an anecdote. And because it's the the genesis of our friendship and also uh, sort of comical and classically teenaged, it's uh, naturally it's pretty burned into my memory. But, Kristen, there's actually something embedded in that story 
that I think is the essence of who you are. And to reiterate that point, I want to use another anecdote that is actually just as memorable for me. I don't know if it is for you, but it, it's it really crystallizes what I think is wonderful about you and what I loved about high school. It was our senior year of high school. I couldn't tell you when. Um, it m- must have been the spring, I guess, but I just don't even really know. And it was time for our AP European history exam. Uh, I'm pretty sure we weren't in the same class at that point. I was in Dr. Ellison's class with Shannon Harrison and Jared Van Alstyne. I'm guessing that you were in a different class. I was with Mr. Powers and Jeff. Yeah, Dick Powers, right. Uh, Anyway, it was the one AP exam that I was uh, the most scared of, and um, and I I needed help. I certainly felt like I needed help. And I don't know if you actually organized the big study session prior to that exam, but you definitely hosted it at your house. And I can vividly remember you leading it, like setting the agenda, keeping us on track and on schedule. Uh, It must have been like, you know, maybe six to ten of us. And you were just pulled everyone together to – get all these facts and and ideas straight and looking back on it now for me it is like this sun-drenched montage from an 80s movie because first of all we were in like your solarium living room so i just remember it being bright and and uh and sunny that day but also i remember this really warm feeling that it evokes, but absolutely none of the actual knowledge from the class. <laughs> I'm sure that we must have talked about, like, you know, the Treaty of Ghent or whatever, but I have zero recollection of what that is or or where Ghent is or what Ghent is. Probably Europe. Uh, yeah, maybe. Louis the Fourteenth. Yep. Well, his dad. So you, you certainly remembered. Uh, anyway, uh, what I do remember is that feeling of friendship and collegiality. And I remember packing up after that study session and caravanning over to the the Presbyterian church where we were taking the exam, feeling proud and confident of what I was doing and the people that I was doing it with. And that I was in this group that shared the same values and you know there we are talking about values again and um i'm sure that i did well on that test because of that study group uh, no offense to dr ellison and i i attribute a lot of the credit to you and that's you know just one time obviously but over and over in high school and in the decades since i have stood back and and watch you uh, grow into a leader, someone that brings people together. And you have this, um, you have a kind of optimism and eagerness to engage with the world that is hard for me, but that I really admire at the risk of being 
uh, schmaltzy, although I probably passed schmaltzy uh, five minutes ago. You're exactly the, the kind of person that I want my daughter to be when she grows up. And on an individual level, you always showed such faith in me. And I think your your question uh, from just 10 minutes ago speaks to this. I've always felt like you were one of my biggest fans. And there were times when it really meant something to have that in my pocket, knowing that, well, no matter what else I do, whether uh, the people at Hallmark like this uh, submission packet or whether they don't, at least I know that Kristen Schaff likes me and thinks that I'm good. And I, I'm sorry that um, we don't see each other or talk to each other very much anymore. It, although if this conversation is any indication, it feels like we're just picking right up where we left off last time. But uh, you know, so if I thought that that distance diminished your affection for me i would feel like i lost something really truly precious you know the thing that sucks about being a leader is that people usually don't appreciate you until after you're gone but i want you to know Kristen, that i have always appreciated you thank you jason i appreciate that and i still have those hallmark submissions somewhere in this in this room that I'm sitting in. Wow. That is in itself a, a compliment. Somewhere. I, and probably a reminder to do some cleaning up. Anyway, Kristen, thus endeth the Hammersley Inquisition. I learned a little bit about you, Jason. And I learned that you didn't play the oboe. Yeah. And I was in Ed Zigarovich, if he ever listens to this man, jeez. It's all uh, over. If you're out there, Ed, and you'd like to uh, come on for a rebuttal, uh, you know how to find me. Thank you to all the listeners out there. If you have comments, questions, compliments, or complaints, you can always reach out to me at hammerslay at gmail.com. This is a reminder that you can also subscribe to my email newsletter, the Hammerslay Exposition, at buttondown.email. Yes, that's dot email slash hammerslay. The main title theme was generously provided by Jason Menkes at Copilot Music and Sound. All opinions and bad jokes are solely my own and do not represent the views of my employer, my family, my friends, and especially my guests. Thank you very much, Kristen, for being my guest today. Until next time, my name is Jason Hammersley. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The Inquisition. What a show. The Inquisition. Here we go. We know you're wishing that we'd go away. But the Inquisition's here and it's here to stay.